0: Well, church, if this is a first time or first time in a long time, uh, welcome, welcome back. We've started a new series in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We're going to continue in that a little bit more today. Uh, We've moved past or we're kind of continuing in the teachings of Christ. We've moved past the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting into the uh, parables of Christ right now, and so... Uh, If you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, The parable we're going to look at is probably one of the more famous parables that that, uh, we're going to come across. It's a parable that uh, you probably don't even need to be a believer to have heard or understood at some point in time. But essentially, it's the parable of the prodigal son, uh, easily one of our favorites and, and, and a personal favorite of mine. But essentially, this is going to be the parable that's going to explain why we do everything that we do. It's the parable that's going to get at the question of what's the motivation, what's the driving force behind everything that you do? Why do you do the different things that you do? Why do you give the way that you give? Why do you serve the way that you serve? Uh, a number of years ago, I had my first opportunity to go to uh, South Sudan with a friend who is was uh, with Empower Sudan, uh, now, was Empower One at the time. Uh, another missionary uh, that we support here at the church and went out to Torit, Sudan and uh, this place is uh, way out in the bush there, and so hadn't been on a trip like this before, but we were partnering with a, a bunch of uh, local pastors that were there, uh, local tribesmen helping establish their, their church and get them off the ground and things of that nature. And so I'm out in the bush, and we're kind of going to different homes that are there, which are essentially mud huts and really out in the middle of nowhere. And we're coming across them and we're praying with people. We're sharing the gospel. We're sharing some different resources and things of that nature. And I come across this home that's got about four women sitting out front and uh, they're hand-washing clothes and, and they're shucking corn at the time. And uh, we sit down with them, and I start engaging with them. And I'm not kidding. Like one of the ladies just sat there; they, their jaws just kind of dropped, and she just was just staring wide eyed the entire time. I'm trying to talk and have a conversation with her through a translator, trying to engage and, and ask some questions and things like that. And she's just staring, giving me no response whatsoever. Finally, the uh, the, the translator turns to me. And he goes, uh, "You must forgive her. She's she's never seen a white person before in her life." And I was like, "Well, that makes sense. We're out in Tarit, Sudan, and..." Uh, there's not any of us around here and stuff like that, and and so um, I, I keep trying to reengage with her for a little bit, and uh, she finally opens her mouth and asks me this question, and the question that she wanted to know is just simply why are you here? She looked at me and she just she finally started talking, and the guy goes, "Why are you here? Why did you come all the way from Dallas, Texas, all the way from the United States in the middle of?" Um, Luxury and comforts and prosperity and things of that nature. Why in the world would you come all the way over here to someone like me in the middle of the bush this far out of the way? That's the question that she wanted to know. Um, if you were engaged in Revive Texas, so the number about a year and a half ago, this is a thing we used as a, our church was mobilized along with a hundred or so other churches here to go into the streets and to engage the community. We were praying with people, and we were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you were out there and a part of that, which most of you were, uh, I, 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 that was the question that you got over and over and over again: like, why in the world would you be talking with strangers? Right? Like we'd go up and talk with strangers, and and that was the question: why are you out here? Why do you want to pray with me? You don't even know who I am. You don't even know my story. Like, this is an awkward conversation on most levels and things like that. Like, why would you go and do the things that you do? Uh, a few months back, our church staff on a Monday, we took the entire day off. We went out to Our Calling, which is a, a homeless outreach in downtown. We went out there to hang out with the homeless community, to serve, to um, connect with those partners out there. I'm sitting at a table with a group of about four homeless men. And of course, they finally asked the question that was on the top of their mind. Like, why are you guys doing the things that you're doing? Why would you come out here and hang out with us? You have jobs, you have comfort, you have all these different kinds of things. Like, why would you go and do the things that you do? And really, church, like the bottom line of it is, like, that's the question that we've all got to be asking. Like, what is the thing that drives you to do the things that you do? Uh, what is the, the, the main core motivational thing which drives the way that you live? Like, why do you give the way that you give? Why do you live where you live? Why do you work where you work? And why do you work the way that you actually work? Why do you love people the way that you love people? Why do you come and you gather week after week after week? Why do you serve the church left and right? Why do you go and do circle one? Why do you go and do a food pantry? Why do you go and serve the homeless? Like, why do you do what you do? Church, bottom line, like, do you know your why? Do you know the thing that's deep inside of your soul that is driving you to do everything that you do? That's essentially the question that this parable is going to help us with this morning. And so again, if you have your Bibles, Luke 15 is where we want to go. Um, again, parable of the prodigal son, but uh, we don't really catch this part at the beginning of the story. Essentially, like this is the question that, that kicks off the entire set of, the entire, <laughs> the entire, the entire set of parables here at, the, at this passage. Here's what he says in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then he says in verse 3, that's when Jesus came and told him this parable. And in other words, like they're sitting and they're kind of looking at Jesus and they're going, okay, well, hey, Jesus, like, why are you hanging out with these tax collectors? Hey, Jesus, like what's the deal with the people that you're hanging out with? What's the deal with these sinners? Why do they feel so comfortable around you? Jesus like, like, uh, your life doesn't make sense. You're supposed to be this religious figure. You're supposed to be... This religious savant who knows the law and all these different kinds of things. And so like, why are you doing the things that you do? Why aren't you a separatist like we are? Like, why aren't you uh, guarding your witness and making sure that people don't misunderstand you and think that you're approving of their behavior like we do? Why does it seem like you're welcoming to these people instead of condemning their sin why aren't you more concerned about people getting the wrong idea or about your reputation or things of the matter church like this entire thing begins with the question of why Jesus is living in such a way that does not make sense to the religious elite of that day and they're sitting there kind of going okay why in the world would you hang out with the despised people of our day like make no mistake church like that's who these people are we're not talking about easy people to, to love or to be around. Like, these people don't gain you anything in social status or anything like that. Um, the, the, the tax collectors are some of the most despised people of the day. Like, they're not just cute, cute little Zacchaeus who likes to hang out on a tree and, and, you know, take a look at Jesus and hanging out in sycamore trees and things like that. Like, like they're despised, hated people. These are the people that, uh, that rob from the poor in order to stuff their pockets and feed the rich. These are the people that were just constantly oppressing people and keeping people down. These are the people that not only did that, but they worked for Rome, and so their profession by itself it funded the most, uh, the most horrific, uh, the most horrific and oppressive regime at the day. That's who they were. Like this is the enemy, and of course we know that like the sinners, they're not much work. They're not much better. Like these are the people whose sin defined who they were. These are the people whose whose past actions were so public. And the things that they've done were so widely known by everybody else that they stopped going by their name and they were grouped into this this category simply called sinners. These are the people that were the prostitutes and the adulterers and the thieves and the murderers and the scandalous people that no one wanted anything else to do with. And these are the people that thought that Jesus was a friend that hung out with them, that spent time with them. These are people that are gathering around Jesus, listening to them. And essentially the religious people, they don't understand why in the world Jesus isn't more condemning in his tone or condemning in his attitudes and why he's a friend to these kinds of people. And so for that reason, Jesus is getting into some of the most famous parables that you and I are ever going to hear. He's going to be talking about three different parables back to back to back. One's about a lost sheep. Uh, there's a good shepherd. He has 100 of them. 99 of them are safe. There's one that goes missing, and he takes, to go, takes off to go find that lost sheep. The next one's about a lost coin. She's got 10 coins. She loses one in the home, turns the home upside down in order to go find that lost coin. And here in verse 11, he tells the story of a father who's got two sons. The older son's the responsible one that sticks around the home, is faithful to dad all the days. The younger one is a little bit rebellious. And it says in verse 11, he says that there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so it, there's no please or thank you in this request or anything like that. Like, it's just, it's just, dad, I need you to give me my inheritance because I really don't want to have to wait till you're dead. That's essentially what he's saying to dear old dad. Dad, I... I know that there's an inheritance coming, but but you're actually more valuable to me dead than you are alive. And so I'm going to be needing that inheritance right now because I don't want to have to wait until you're dead. Like, I want that money right now. Honestly, church, can you imagine a more painful thing that a beloved son or daughter could possibly say to you? I mean, and especially if this is the family scenario where you're the involved parent. You're the father of the mother that was there the whole time. You didn't take off and leave. You didn't abandon them. You loved them. You provided for them. You cared for them. You supplied their needs. You wiped up after them. You fed them. You, covered up, like you put Band-Aids on their knees and things of that nature. Like, like, You were there for that child. Can you imagine anything more painful than hearing these words from your son? I, honestly, I thought about that a lot, and I was like, I, I cannot name anything that would be more painful for me personally than if Caleb were to grow up in this environment And I thought we had this loving relationship with one another. And then all of a sudden, he's like, Dad, I could care less about who you are. But I'm going to need your money. And I'm going to need your protection. I'm going to need the things that I think that are owed to me. I don't care to know you. I don't care that my kids will ever know your name. You're meaningless to me. And yet, that's the image that Jesus uses here to show the pain when one of his sons, one of his daughters, runs away from the father. It's the image that he uses to communicate um, the depth of emotion that is felt by the Heavenly Father when we walk away from him and sin. It's the depth of emotion that uh, this, is, this is how he feels. This is, this is the, the, the image that we need to understand of what it's like when we rebel against him and when we essentially say the same things. I can imagine at this point in the story, like the sinners and the tax collectors, they're going to be leaning in hardcore because they know that Jesus is talking about their story. Like they know that they're the son, they know that they're the younger son in the story, like there's no doubt about that. Like Jesus is about to describe their testimony at this point in time. They know who they are. They remember what it's like to have essentially that conversation with the father, where they're kind of like, okay, Father God, um, you're wonderful. However, I don't care to know you, but I will take your comfort. I'll take some. Uh, I'll take some safety. I'll take justice whenever I've been wronged. Um, I'll take some health and some wealth and some prosperity, and of course, I'm going to curse you if I don't get it, but we don't really need to know each other. I don't ever care to open up my word or, or to know who you are. Like They remember what that's like, and so they're going to be leaning in at this point in the story, kind of going, like, where's Jesus going with this story? And of course, meanwhile, the Pharisees, the religious people, they're going to be on the other end of the spectrum here, and they're going to be leaning in for a different reason because Jesus is going to be explaining this story, and these Pharisees and religious leaders are going to be leaning in, kind of going, yeah, get him, Jesus. What's going to happen to this kid? Oh, I can't wait to see what this father does to him. He's going to give it to him. Because what you don't understand is like what's normative at that point in time is that the father would give the son what he deserved, what he justly deserved. There's a scholar named Kenneth Bailey, he writes about it like this, and he says, here's what was normative at the time. First century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy rejected the family, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so is cut off from the people. This ceremony was called the kazaza, literally the cutting off, and after it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with this wayward person. Like that was, That's what would have been expected at this point in time. What's expected, and as the religious leaders are leaning in, they're sitting there kind of going, okay, oh yeah, cut this kid off. Give him what he deserves. Give him what he deserves. I, can't, I, I cannot wait to see what's going to happen because the, it wasn't just a family that's shaming this kid. The entire community comes around and they would typically shame this kid. You've rebelled against the father, you rebelled against all of us, and you're kicked out. That's what was expected at this point in time. However, this father's a little bit different. And we read here that he says that he essentially acquiesces to the younger son, and he divides his property between them. And we know how the story goes, right? It's predictable outcome. The kid wants his money. He wants to do what he wants to do. It says that um, not long after that, the younger son got together everything that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild and prodigal living. Church, like that's the word where we, that's where we get the word prodigal son, It literally means wild or reckless living. It's not so much a runaway child, although it could absolutely include that, but it's a a reckless, um, wild kind of a person. It's somebody who's been given a whole lot and is reckless in his spending to the point that he's giving it all away. And so that's essentially what he's talking about right here. Verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Church, you know what that one's called? It's called Rock Bottom. I mean, maybe, maybe some of us have been there before, but it's that place where you get, where you realize, you know what, I'm no longer self-sufficient like I thought I was self-sufficient, I mean, the whole thing begins, and and young son over here, he believes that he's got everything under control. The only thing that I need from the father is wealth and material, my, my inheritance and things, things like that. I'm self-sufficient. I'm good on my own. Like, those are the only things that he thinks that he needs. He's self-sufficient until he gets to the point when he's not. He's lost everything. All of his money is gone. All of his friends are gone. All of his family ties, they're completely gone. And he's found himself in this place where he's literally hanging out in a pigsty, and he's jealous of the pigs. It's what he just says. He longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one was willing to give him anything. In other words, they all were all looking at him and going, you know what, I'd rather feed my pigs. Like, you're more valuable to me. Uh, Like, my pigs are more valuable to me than you are. That's how bad that it's gotten for this kid. And you want to know, like, here's the interesting thing about this story. You want to know how he gets there? All he's doing is following his heart. Isn't this what we talked about last week? Isn't that where joy is found, right? All you got to do in the mantra of our world today, all you got to do is follow your heart, then you'll be happy, you'll be full of joy, and then you'll have everything that you ever wanted. It's what Woody Allen talked about. We, we highlighted it last week. The heart wants what the heart wants. You deny your heart what it really wants, then you're betraying your heart. You'll never really be happy. Like, is, not, is that not the mantra of today? And it sounds fantastic. I mean, you can put that on Instagram, and you're going to get a 1,000 likes and things of that nature. Until you actually start following that mantra, And then you start to realize, okay, well, there's something deceptive about my heart. (laughs) My heart doesn't always lead me in the right place. It can actually be calloused. It can actually be wicked. It can actually be really, really evil. And in following my heart, it can actually lead me to a million different places that I never really wanted to go. Church, like, all he's doing is following his heart. That's it. It's all he's doing. And the irony is that his heart gave him everything that he really longed for. Like, all he wanted was money. He wanted freedom, autonomy, booze, control, women, good times, things of that nature. Like, like his heart gave him everything that he wanted. But the problem is, it did not last, it ran out. It's why Hebrews is going to say, yeah, there's pleasure in sin. Don't let any pastor, friend, or anybody else tell you there's not pleasure in sin because there is. If you think, like, it feels really, really good, but here it is, it only lasts for a season, the author of Hebrews says. In other words, it starts off really strong and it promises you the world but it does not last for any amount of time. And some of us, like, we're sitting here kind of going, like, I know that story. That's my testimony. <laughs> I started pursuing the matters of my heart. I started, started following it hardcore. And, the, and in the beginning, like, the parties were incredibly awesome. Like, it gave me the things that I was looking for. It gave me the emotional high, the friendships, the support, the fun, the excitement, and things like that. But now, all of a sudden, I've got this addiction I can't actually break. And it's actually killing the people that I was called to love. And some of you know, like, like that's how you got to rock bottom at some point in your life. Or maybe you're looking back and you're kind of going, okay, like the promiscuity that I engaged in college, young adult years, things of that nature, like that was awesome and it was exciting and it felt really, 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 really good for a long time. But now you're discovering that promiscuity and variety is no substitute for intimacy. And now you're discovering things like, okay, um, all the years of training my heart and training my mind to be satisfied by variety, it doesn't do me any good now that I'm trying to pursue faithfulness at home today. Or maybe it's the online addiction that you developed, and, and, and you, you, you jumped in there thinking, okay, harmless, it's not hurting anybody, it's a ton of fun, it's giving me satisfaction that I wanted, and it's promising you the world, and it provides a bit of satisfaction until you get home and you can't figure out why in the world is my heart so disconnected from the real thing that I chose to marry and commit myself to for the rest of my days. Church, all, like, all he's doing is following his heart. That's That's it. He's following the mantra that all of us believe and we, we like on Instagram and everything else that we want to continue following, and it leads him to rock bottom. Angelina Jolie, in an interview a little while ago, um, she was talking about uh, one of the most depressing rock bottom times in her life. It was just after she achieved everything that she wanted to achieve. Uh, it was just after she hit it big in the movies. Uh, she had all the money that she could ever dream of. Uh, she had fame. She had found love with Billy Bob Thornton. I didn't know how that didn't work out, um, But here's her quote. She simply says this. She says, how was it that I could have everything that I was supposed to have to be happy and still not be happy? Like, Eminem said the the exact same thing. He said, you got to be careful what you wish for. Like, I always wish for all of this fame and popularity and success and money and women and, and freedom and autonomy and all these different kinds of things. But it's become more of a nightmare to me than it has a dream. Church, like, all he's doing is pursuing his heart, which in and of itself, like, may not necessarily be a bad thing as long as your heart is aligned with the heart of the Father. But this guy said, peace out to the Father a long time ago and started chasing it himself and has led him to this place where he's sitting in a pigsty and he's jealous of the pigs. It's rock bottom, church, make no mistake. He continues in verse 17, and here's where he begins to turn things around. I love this passage. Here's what he says. He says, when he came to his senses I hope and pray that that's everybody's experience. If you're in rock bottom right now, you've had it at some point in your past, maybe you know you're at rock bottom or not, my hope and prayer is that you would come to your senses, that you'd eventually stop running and you'd have this experience where you're sitting here kind of going, okay, Lord, I'm awakened to the running that I'm in right now. But it says in 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. In other words, like, he's not motivated by love for, for his father. Like this is the most broken repentance and turnaround I've ever seen in Scripture. He doesn't care about his father. He doesn't care about any of those things. Like, the dude's hungry. He's hungry, and he's kind of sitting there going, look, his employees over there eat better than I do. That's his motivation at this point in time. And so he sets up this plan, and he says, I'll set out, and I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You know what he's doing here in this scene right, right here? Uh, he, he's practicing the speech. You know what I'm talking about? The speech that you give your parents when you know that you're busted. You know, it's like 3 a.m., you're supposed to be home at midnight. You know, mom and dad, they're sitting there in the living room, and oh, man, you, I, you know there's no getting, away, getting around it. And you come home, and you're kind of driving home, you're like, okay, here's what I'm gonna tell them. And you're like, dad, uh, I know I'm a little bit late and stuff, but you don't understand, like, the party got crazy, and like, people were going nuts, they needed me. They needed my responsibility to be there. Like, I needed to be there, and I needed to take people home. I needed to help people that were in need. You don't understand the amount of, like, I, all the, you're, they were lucky I was there. You know what I'm talking about? That's the speech that you give to your parents, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He's rehearsing his speech and exactly what he's going to try to tell his parents when he gets home, what his dad when he gets home. And the interesting thing about his speech is it's not even a very good speech, it's actually a pretty terrible speech. He's, he, he, he actually believes that somehow that his sonship is based on his worth. Do you catch that? I mean, I mean that's what he just said. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. By the way, church, it's, your sonship's not based on your worth. It's not how it works, right? right? Sonship is always a matter of birth. It's never a matter of your worth. Daughtership is never a matter of of worth. It's always a matter of birth. It is a thing that is gifted. It is a thing that you are born into. You never earn your way into a family. And God says through John, as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. It is a gift that you receive. It is never a thing that you earn. However, in the middle of this place, this young son is thinking to himself, I'm no longer worthy to be called my father's son. Church, it's not how that works. It is always a matter of birth and never a matter of worth. That's why Paul's going to say, I'm convinced that there is nothing that will be able to separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, once you are a son, you never stop being a son. Caleb screws up. He is always going to be my son. However, that is exactly what the enemy would have you believe when you're hiding there in the middle of your shame. When you and I have hit rock bottom and what he loves to do is he loves to come to you in that place when you've hit rock bottom whether you know that you're at rock bottom or not he loves to come to you in that place and convince you that you are no longer worthy of being the father's son who in the world are you to return to the heavenly father once again after the things that you've done he loves to come in when you've when you're hiding and when you've hit rock bottom probably even before you come to the time that you realize where you are and he loves to convince you that you are not worthy to come back and to be in the father's presence he loves to cripple you with shame it's what he does Like the things that you've done, it's no longer a matter of guilt where you say, okay, these are guilty things. I I am guilty of sin. I can repent and turn around. He's attacking your character and he's attacking your identity and who you truly are. You are no longer worthy to be a son. Church, this young son never stopped being his father's son. Even in the rebellion and even in the wandering and even in the slap in the face and even in, in all of his recklessness, he never, ever, 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 ever stopped being his father's son. Yet here he is at rock bottom, jealous of the pigs, wondering to himself, okay, what do I need to do in order to be my father's son once again? So we pick it up in verse 20, and it says, he got up and he went to be with his father. His speech is all prepared. He's ready to go talk to him. And and it says, here it is. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know what's beautiful about that passage? And it, it means that the father has never stopped looking for his son. While the dude is like making his way over the, over the field like you can see his head and, and the father you, you get this picture that he comes out to his porch every single day and he's just waiting for his son to come home and the other parables do a better job of explaining this element of it but but it's, it's the parable of the good shepherd and and one sheep takes off and the shepherd leaves the 99 who are fine to go find that lost sheep and it's the woman who loses one coin and turns everything upside down in search of that one lost coin because that coin is so valuable to her like we get this sense that the father has never stopped searching for the son. She, he sees the son's head over the horizon. And it says that in his joy, it says that he is moved by, by compassion. Uh, he is so moved with compassion. Dad's out there looking and he's scanning the fields. And Jesus says when he finally saw him, uh, he, was, he was filled with compassion inside of his soul. He's not filled with anger or rage He's not filled with, 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 uh, with an overwhelming amount of just vengeance and things of that nature. Uh, He's filled with compassion. Uh, none of these other things, the word that he uses there is splagnizomai, which means that he is, he is so moved that you can feel it all the way down in the depths of your stomach and in the middle of your guts, all the way to the innermost parts of your being. He is filled with compassion when he sees his son coming home. It's this feeling that you and I had when you were watching 9-11 unfold on your TV, and you were watching these buildings collapse, and you knew that there were hundreds of people inside, and you were watching people run inside, and you did not know their names. Yet in the middle of that place, like you broke inside. You were filled with compassion and you wanted to weep because of what was unfolding right in front of your face. You did not know who they were, but you stepped in those mother's and daughter's shoes. You stepped in those families' shoes, in the family, in the friends, and you stepped in that place and you felt compassion in the moment for the things that those people were experiencing that point in time. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. This person who's coming down the street and he sees a man who's broken, bloodied, and bruised laying on the side of the road. And even though this man is a natural enemy of his, these are the races that do not coincide. These are the races that were taught to always hate each other. And he sees this broken and bloodied man. And the scripture says that moved with compassion, filled with compassion, he is compelled to go and to love that man who is broken, bloodied, and bruised. And he picks him up and he takes him on the back of his donkey and he rides him into town and he pays this caregiver in order to care for this man and to see that he is moved. And what Jesus is saying is that that is exactly how the father felt when he saw his son return home. He wasn't angry. He wasn't filled with rage he's not thinking about vengeance he's not thinking about a million other things all he can see is his son come over that horizon and the compassion fills up inside of him and it takes such control over him it says that he ran to his son threw his arms around him and he kissed him I love this point church because like fathers did not do that at that point in time they didn't sprint down a field they sat there typically and they said okay it's about time where were you where have you been and this father sees his son across the way, and he sprints 1,000 miles per hour to get to his son. And it says that when he finds his son, he wraps his arms around him, and he is weeping on his son's face. And he grabs his face, and he begins kissing him over and over and over again. He is filled with compassion. And I love this part of the text. It says the son right now, he tries to go into a speech. Like the dude's not even getting it, right? He's like, Dad, this is weird. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're slobbering all over me. Like, why? I, he's, like the dude's going Jimmy Volvano on the thing where he's running around the court screaming with his head cut off. Like, he's so overjoyed that his, that his son is coming home. And, and, and it says that the son tries to go in the speech. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, like, the dad's not having it. Like, the dad won't even let him. He, he immediately interrupts him and is like, and, and he goes, quick, bring me the best robe and put it on him. And he says, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it because we're having steaks tonight. Like, we're going to have a party tonight. Like, immediately, like, who does that? Church, this did not happen at that point in time. It still doesn't happen today. You have a wandering son come home. You give that son what they're due. That's what's typical, and it's not what this father does. It's what, it's what Selwyn Hughes calls the scandal of grace. You didn't eat your dinner, and I'm giving you dessert anyway. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it, and I'm giving you it anyway. It's a scandal of grace. Church, like the father is not sitting there with a belt ready to whip his son. This is the same son that that ruined everything, that essentially slapped his father in the face and said, Father, I don't even care to know you. All I need is your money. All I need is your things. I don't want my kids knowing you. We're done with this relationship. Just give me your stuff. It's the same son that squandered everything that he had on booze and prostitutes and things of that nature. It's the same kid who mocked his father's name and didn't even think to repent until he was so low. He was jealous of the pigs. And he comes home simply because he's hungry. And the father sees him from a distance and says, he's so filled with compassion the rage is far from him. And he sprints to his son and he throws his arm around him. And he starts like weeping and sobbing and kissing his face because his son has come home. And then he starts like giving them gifts. Here's a ring. Here's a robe. Here's sandals, and he starts like planning a party. Church, like how much time passed before he goes into party planning mode? Three minutes. I mean, he sees him, it, it, church. It's immediate. It's the point of this. Like, it's so fast. He sees his face, and immediately he's just thinking about, hey, I want to dance somewhere. I need to find a DJ, and I need to get on that dance floor, and I need to go nuts. I need the disco ball. I need the hip-hop music. I need to go nuts on this thing because I'm so filled with joy that my son has finally come home. It's a, point, like, where in the, it's a scandal of grace. Where's the repentance in the whole story? Like, Aren't we supposed to sit there and be like, all right, I'm glad that you're home, but let me see if it's legit. Like, Time will tell. If your motivations are right. Why did you want to go? You're, you're hungry? That's why you're home? Like, where's the repentance in this whole thing? It's simply in the fact that he comes home. That's it. It's the most broken, terrible repentance in the entire scripture. And the, and the father is overjoyed that his son is right. Like, where are the reparations? Where's the penance? Where's making up for all the wrong things that he's done? Like, like this kid knows that he's not an idiot. He knows what he's done. And he's even planning for this. It's why he does the whole speech. He knows that things aren't gonna be the same as they used to be. He understands that there's a price to pay for the things that he's done. It's why he's crawling back home simply asking for a job. Problem is like dad's not having it. He cuts him off and he goes, I don't, we're not talking about jobs here. You're my son. Sonship, daughtership, it's not a matter of worth, it's a matter of your birth. Like you've forgotten who you are. You have access to the Father. This is your home, too. It's a scandal of grace. Everything that the son has done is joyfully absorbed by the love of the father. All the pain and all the damage, all the cost, the father does not allow his son to pay anything. And you want to know why? Simply because he's glad that his son's finally come home. That's it. In fact, it's the entire point of these parables. Jesus, why in the world are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? You want to know why I'm hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? I'll tell you the truth. There's more joy in heaven when one of them repents and comes home than over 99 righteous people who are fine. Jesus, why in the world are you hanging out with the prostitutes and the the adulterers and the this, that, and the other? You want to know why? It's because it's kind of like this coin, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents and comes home. Jesus, like why in the world would you go and touch the blind? Why would you heal the lepers? Like why do you care about racial reconciliation, Jews and Gentiles, white and black and brown and yellow and red? Why do you care about the homeless and the refugee and the immigrant and healing those who are sick? It's because you don't understand how much joy I have when simply one of my sons comes home. Boy, Why do you say, it is the love of Jesus Christ that compels me? Paul, why do you continue to go spreading the gospel, shipwreck after shipwreck, torture after torture, broken, bloodied, and abused, cast off from friends? It's the love of Jesus Christ that compels me to do everything that I do church about three and a half years ago, almost to the day, I wrote down a little prayer that uh, I think that God has used. We've used a lot around here that's really helped shape our mission and our vision and how we talk about the different things that we do around here. It's a simple one, but it's still the way that I pray for us today. But I wrote down and simply said, Lord, let us be a church that is infatuated with you. Let us love the things that you love and let us be a church that's included in the one percent that is always going after and pursuing the one. Let us be faithful to be a church that loves all and helps all follow Jesus, emphasis on the word all, meaning not just friends and people that are like us, but people that are the complete opposite of us too. Not just people that come inside these walls, but people that are outside these walls too. Not just people that look like us, but white and black and brown and yellow and red. Not just rich people, poor people too. Not just poor people, rich people too. Not just Republicans, Democrats, and not just Democrats, independents and Republicans emphasis on all. By your grace, God, would you let us become a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by that grace that brings joy to our city and glory to God. Church, I've told you in the past couple weeks, like, there's a lot of different things that we're celebrating here at this church. We sat around our table on Monday at our staff meeting, and people are going around just kind of just bragging on the Lord and just celebrating some of these things that that we're seeing here and I'll just tell you some Don and Zane. were are just talking about the explosion of kids over there in our children's ministry. Evidently, you guys are really, really fertile. And so um, <laughs> there's a lot, of, there's a lot of taking place over there. This past year, we saw about 22 children profess faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we saw about 12 of them baptized this past year. And Zane and Don were just talking about the number of kids that were meeting with them and talking with their parents and the families and stuff that are in the hopper to be baptized here very, very soon. And so we were sitting there celebrating those different things. We we're talking about the youth ministry and the women's ministry, the life group ministry and things like that. But it just seems like every single week we're hearing different stories of what God's doing here in the church body, of how marriages are being repaired and about how addictions are being broken and about how the lost are being saved and about how people are taking new steps of faith and engaging the mission of God for the very first time. And, and it's just one of these things that we're celebrating a whole lot as a church. One of those things, obviously, is what we've talked about the past couple of weeks. We are celebrating that for the very first time at Dallas Bible Church, uh, we're a debt-free church. We started off with a $3.6 million debt five years ago. It was a combination of inner uh, classrooms that were built and, and previous debt that hadn't been paid off. And in God's grace, in five years, we were able to pay that off early. As I said before, um, the joy in that is not the fact that it's debt-free. The joy in that is the the additional opportunities that that allows us to continue to go and to pursue the one, that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of different things that we're celebrating. I want to take a few minutes, and I just want to talk with you um, just for a few about what's next in the life of the church now that we are debt-free. What opportunities is is this going to free up um, for us? There's a couple different buckets I want to talk about this in. The first bucket is very, very simply uh, the uh, the obvious stuff. It's the ministry and facility improvements that we'll be able to participate in. Um, there's a major development taking place next door. Uh, that's part of, uh, part of some of our motivation, but, uh, we're going to be continuing to invest in what we've called for the love of the community events. Okay. This has been like our community giveaway, which is, uh, we fill up our youth building with great furniture and stuff like that. We help families in need and we give it to them. We don't sell it to them or ask for anything else. we come and we deliver furniture and things like that. That would be one example of a for the good of the community event. We want to continue to beef that up, and we're going to have a Serve Sunday where we mobilize the church body on a Sunday morning to go into the community serving uh, in very, very tangible, hands-on ways. And so we want to continue building in some of these different ministry improvements, uh, and all the different ministries that we're here to just um, continue to investment there. Uh, Facility improvements, you're going to notice a few things that are going to be different. We have no desire to ever become this uh, large, luxurious building that's a god in and to itself. Um, uh, we have no desire to do that, and we also have no desire to get back into debt. And so through these things, we have desi- we have a, we're going to be very intentional to plan for the future. Uh, meanwhile, continuing to improve some things that are happening behind the scenes around here. Uh, how many of you guys have heard about the Hillcrest Village development taking place right over here? Um, if you live in the area, you notice like these... Uh, that shopping center right there looks terrible right now. Uh, that's because they're tearing things down and building brand new things right there. I've got a couple pictures here. They're doing some fun stuff. They're t- building a giant park in the middle of it, um, which means that their desire is that this is going to be a place where the community is going to come and gather. Uh, it's going to be right, literally right next door to our youth building right back there. Uh, when I started a few years back, one of the interesting things that we found was that people in our community didn't even know we were here. And so right now, literally, God is bringing people right next door to our church in this development. And so basically, we want to be ready for people that are coming by. Personally, I cannot wait Sunday afternoons, normal days, to be able to go out there. The idea is that that giant park in the middle, kids can go play, families can do picnics. Um, They're going to be lined with brand new restaurants that all have Uh, patio-themed seating and outdoor space and areas and stuff like that where you can hang out and gather. But the whole point of it is that this is going to be a community gathering spot literally right next door to our church. What that means is uh, right now the back of our building kind of looks like that old decrepit grocery store that's shut down right next door. And so we'll probably do a few things and say, hey, we're actually a church and we're alive in here. And so um, that may be a little, a little bit of it. As people drive by, we want people to know this is a church we want you to come into and be a part of. And so that's very base level kind of stuff, ministry improvements, facility improvements, and you'll see some, some things going on right there. The other bu- big bucket I want to talk about is essentially missions, okay? And when we talk about missions here at the church, you need to understand that missions is not just a trip that you take when you go overseas, Okay, missions is a call that every believer uh, has to engage the mission uh, of God wherever you may be. Okay, so when we talk about missions, everything that we do here at the church um, has missional roots and has mission intentionality behind it. We are always loving all, helping all follow Jesus, some here locally inside the church, men's ministry, women's ministry, children, student, youth, everything that we do is according to that mission. Nevertheless, I want to break it down into two small categories right here, international focus and local focus. The international one, Um, is a thing we've talked about here recently. Uh, As many of you know, in the summertime, Jeff Moussa came on as our brand new executive pastor. Uh, That has freed up Brian Radabaugh to tackle uh, a lot of missions, ministry, um, intentionality here at the church. And so he's continuing with adult discipleship and missions here at the church. And so he's going after two different things. Internationally, uh, our desire is to mobilize our church body to continue to engage the mission of God all the way around the world. Okay, we understand that what God is doing here at Dallas Bible is one small sliver of what he's doing all the way around the world. As we gather together with men, women, and children that all together compose the universal body of Jesus Christ, we want to support other ministries, other churches, other believers all the way around the world um, in gospel proclamation and serving people for their good and for the glory of God's name. And so what that means is, um, is that we're, gonna, we're, we're specifically looking at two international partners potentially three in the near future, um, so that we, that'll help us mobilize our church body to go and to take trips. Our hope is that at some point in the, in the future, that by faith, uh, that you would allow God to use you, and you would say, you know what, I've never been on a mission trip before. I will go. I'm going to raise the funds. I'm going to do that difficult work. I'm going to go to a culture that I'm not comfortable in, that I don't speak the language, and I'm going to go and just see what God wants to use me to do in that area. And uh, so my hope and prayer, if you've never done one of those, that you will engage at some point in the very, very near future. We've got two uh, areas of emphasis, Guatemala and Bangladesh, Uh, two different new gospel uh, mission partners that we're partnering with. Guatemala is 410 Bridge. You can easily Google that a little bit later on. If you want to learn more about that organization, we love them. Uh, We think they're doing great work that's a holistic philosophy of ministry and which focuses on gospel proclamation coming alongside native workers there in the land and supporting the work that they're doing. We have no desire to come in and come and jump in for a season and pull out. We have no desire to come in and bring the American way to Guatemala, Bangladesh. That's not there. We want to come and support believers that are already there on the ground working and help improve their efforts. Guatemala, both of these places are going to put us into areas of the world where the gospel has not come into before. So these are very, very um, opportunistic uh, areas and and opportunities here where they've never had access to the gospel before. We're going to some very remote parts of Guatemala and even Bangladesh. And so I'd encourage you to check out those two partners if you want to, Gospel for Muslims. That's gonna be Abraham Sarker's ministry. I've had him come and preach here a couple times uh, in the past year. And so we're developing a relationship with him. And that's gonna be a little bit more intense ministry. But again, uh, we've got a relationship there for a long time, and uh, God is moving. It's a very holistic view of ministry that's coming along and helping women specifically uh, develop businesses, uh, get self-sufficient, build churches, and things of that nature. So it's a beautiful, beautiful ministry, and you're going to be hearing a lot about that. And my hope and prayer is that you would consider being a part of that um, as well. The other part is, is the local movement here. And I'm really excited about some things we're going to be moving into very uh, very soon. Again, we are exploring partners. We want partners that help mobilize the church body. Our calling is one I've talked about a lot before. It's a homeless ministry. Uh, it has been around Dallas for a long time. They're downtown. Uh, Wayne Walker is a good friend, and we want to mobilize our church to continue caring for the lost and for the poor and for the homeless that are that are in desperate need. Um, a kids Beach Club is a is a one that's a. <laughs> We don't have beaches around here. However, this is very similar to a youth group or a Young Life setting that allows us to get into local schools and put on these programs uh, in the local schools for elementary kids. Uh, We've seen an incredible amount of fruit in these ministries over in Bowie Elementary and in Brentfield Elementary in the past number of years. Uh, We're going to be adding um, Mohawk Elementary here very soon. I know a number of you guys live over in that area already, and so we're going to add that in and call you to uh, invest in those areas so we can continue pouring into our local schools and local communities there. Um, Okay, here's one. I'm really excited about this one. This is called, um, this is essentially a mission integrated preschool, okay? And so this is what I couldn't talk to you guys about a little while ago when I was doing the last uh, State of the Church address and stuff, but for the longest time, we've had a a great relationship with Spanish Schoolhouse. They rent property from us, one of our key convictions is that this, is, this building has been given to us by God. We want to steward it really well. We don't want it to go empty during the week. Uh, we want it to be used by our community, and uh, again, for the glory of God. We're not, gonna, we don't, we're not just a Sunday kind of a thing. And so Spanish Schoolhouse is rented from us for a long time. It's a fantastic school. My son went there, loved it, and we love them a whole lot. Their lease is up this summer. Uh, they have found a new property nearby to go over there, which has freed us up to uh, specifically look if there's a new, uh, more aligned school that we can partner with and helping reach our community with preschool opportunities there. Uh, we've been exploring two big ones recently, and um, if I can just speak on it, it seems like God's shutting down the doors there, um, and which has led us to, to do the thing I really wanted to do all along. Uh, which is do our own preschool and, and and build it from within, so that we can have uh, a lot of, so we can hire from within our church body, so that we can send people out, um, and so it, this could be a Dallas Bible maneuver where we are moving into this area. You know this very very well. The people that are moving into our area are mid thirty year old families, young late thirty year old families with young kids, largely uh, a huge need for preschool, uh, for good healthy preschools too. And so um, we're going to be exploring that. And so if you're at high level administration and you think that, hey, you could be a, a top dog, that's the piece we're missing right there. And uh, we're, we're exploring those, those things right now. The hope is that that would launch in June, or I'm sorry, um, fall of 2020. So not this year because we're going to, the Spanish schoolhouse is going to move out. We're going to let the rooms breathe. We're going to figure out what was actually theirs and they're taking with us, what we need to replenish while we develop the infrastructure and the ground, all the the behind-the-scenes things that need to go into a school, uh, to an endeavor like that. Um, The last thing that I want to talk about, again, something very passionate about, is church planting residency program. And so what you're going to see around here is that there's a lot of Bible schools and seminaries. And uh, the way that we want to handle any growth and multiplication, duplication around here, is we want to be excellent at equipping our church body, building us up, and sending us back out. Uh, into the world to plant churches. We recognize that the church is the body of Jesus Christ. It's his, it's his chosen endeavor to go and to reach the world with the gospel, to spread the gospel all the way around the world. And so we want to be effective in helping plant churches that plant churches that plant churches and do it all down the road. And so um, we're going to partner with DTS, uh, other like-minded uh, schools like that, and we're going to start taking residence, uh, hopefully as early as the fall, Uh, These are going to be people that are going to be very, very close to being ready to plant churches, meaning they've got some maturity to them. They've got training and background already there. They've got gifting that's been identified, and they're ready to go out. We're going to partner together with them for about two years while they serve in our church body in a number of different ways. Uh, And then we are going to help them create their plans and send, gather people with them and send them out to go plant their churches, meaning that we're going to have opportunity to financially support them in the first few years as they kind of wean off dependence upon us and become autonomous church plants in and of themselves. And so uh, no longer do we have the, the debt elimination campaign. We still have that fund that's there, and that fund is going to be used towards church planting residency programs, as that's going to be a thing that is going to cost money to send people out there and help them get established uh, on certain levels there. And so that's going to be really, really, really exciting. The specific, specifically from that, the first one that we're going to go after very intentionally is we're going to be looking for a Spanish ministry church planter. Okay, And that's going to work from within our church body and help us reach the immediate surrounding area, um, which is largely Spanish-speaking. If you notice this uh, around here, there's a lot of Hispanic community here. There's not hardly any integration going on between that and churches that are here. There's a strong Catholic presence in the Hispanic community. There's not a strong evangelical presence. And so um, we're going to be identifying potential church planners here Obviously, fluent in Spanish, willing to live in the surrounding areas. They're going to help us increase our endeavors to reach that community very well. Already, so many of you guys are already involved in that with Circle One, with our food pantry that meets back there. You know that uh, everyone largely coming through there are Spanish speakers, they only speak Spanish. And so um, we're going to be working together with them, helping them start small from within our building, using our, our, our facilities, and then growing them up, building them up, and then sending them out to be autonomous church plants. And so very, very excited about those kinds of things. But um, church, all that to say that God is moving all around here. He's doing it through you. He's doing it through a million different things. And we could not be more grateful for the work uh, that he's doing here. Our hope, my hope uh, for us is that we would not miss what God is wanting to do in our church body and potentially through you. The tragedy of this prodigal son's story is that there is a brother who's completely left out. The tragedy of the story is that there is a brother that that never was able to enter into the joy of what the father was doing, what the father was experiencing when he saw his son come home. That son, that older son, was so caught up in self-righteousness, was so caught up in what he was so doing, that he forgot the heart of the father, and he could not enter into the joy of the party he was throwing for his returned son. And so, church, our hope and our prayer is that you would not miss the joy of the father and his heart and his love in saving those, all those who are far away. This would be a year where you engage in what God is doing and you say, by faith, I'm willing to walk with you and I'm willing to be a part of whatever it is that you wanna do here in and through this community.